In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Today we're starting a new series on the Gospel of John, and that's an exciting thing for us. We just got done with a nearly year-long series on Genesis, and then we did a short series on our vision and values, and now we're hopping right back into the Gospel of John. And with John, we're going to be in this Gospel for what's going to feel like a long time. It's going to be at least a year. Uh, we'll see how long it takes us. So we're going to be walking through John slowly. You know, John is, is like the ocean in that it can be explored and enjoyed by almost anyone. Uh, children can enjoy the shallows and the beach, the seashore, while great explorers can go into the depths time and time again and see new realizations. And so whether you are a baby Christian or you have been studying Christ for your whole life, I pray that you will see the depths of God's love for us in John. John is just an excellent book. Uh, if you're new to Christianity, though, this is an excellent place to start. In fact, I would tell you that if you've never read the Bible before, and I've told many, many people this, uh, that if you've never read the Bible before, start with John. It is the best book to start with. It is one of the most simple books, and it just tells you the story of Jesus. Because when you look at the Bible, the Bible is not what we no normally think about when we think about a book. We think about a, a book and it has different chapters, and it tells one cohesive story, and the Bible does tell one cohesive story. But inside of the Bible aren't, isn't just one book, but it's 66 books of different genres that weave together one long story of God. And so in the Bible, you have history. In the Bible, you have law. In the Bible, you have poetry. You have even a play in there. You have apocalyptic weird literature. You have... Um, commandments about what you do if you have mold in your house. You have uh, a book all about sex. There's lots of stuff in the Bible. It all comes together to weave one beautiful tapestry of a story. But there are certainly some books that are easier and more accessible than others. And John is one of the most accessible books in the entire Bible. What John is called is a gospel. Now, don't let that confuse you, because when we use the term gospel in different ways, okay? When we say gospel, gospel is shorthand for good news. And so when we say gospel, we're talking about the good news of Jesus, which is the basic message of Christianity, which is who Jesus is and what he has done for us, that he, was, that he is God, lived the perfect life, died the death that we deserve, and was resurrected on the third day ascended into heaven, and where he still reigns and rules, and he's coming back one day. That is the gospel. But at the same time, we have a genre of literature called a gospel. And a gospel is a story of Jesus. It is a spiritual biography. The Bible contains four spiritual biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, okay? I don't know if that's a new word for you or not, but they're called the synoptic gospels, because those three are very similar, synoptic, seminem, 
Very similar kind of words. So they're called the Synoptic Gospels. And in the Synoptic Gospels, you find very similar stories. They overlap a ton. And then you have the, the stepchild known as John. All right, John does not overlap with the other ones very much. He, he, they call him the fourth gospel at times. He's the oddball. He's writing things that are not in any of the other stories. And then he leaves out things that are in the synoptic gospels, all three of them. Like the synoptic gospels cover this thing that we call the transfiguration. Not in John. The synoptic gospels talk about demons a lot. Not John. John is not carrying a lot of the narrative discourse that happens in the synoptic gospels. John is a unique take on the life of Jesus. And it's so unique because John was written by a unique fellow who only discloses himself very humbly as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That is the author of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I would like to define myself that way, the pastor whom Jesus loved. Did you know that all four of the Gospels are technically anonymous? They're not given an author in the text. We don't actually have written in the book that this is written by anybody named John, just like we don't have written in the book that it's written by anybody named Matthew or Mark or Luke. They didn't include it in there, as opposed to the epistles. When you get to the epistles, these are the shorter books in the New Testament, so you get to, you get to the epistles and it has an author listed there. It tells you who wrote it, and that makes sense when you think about the genre. Again, when you go to the Bible, you have to think about the genre of what you're reading, because the genre of an epistle, it's a letter. When you're writing a letter, it wouldn't make that much sense if the person you're writing to didn't know who it came from. And so when you're writing a letter, Paul and John and Peter, they're often telling the, the recipients of the letter, hey, it's Paul, okay? I'm writing this to you. Now, when you get to the Gospels, the authors don't always identify themselves. In fact, they never identify themselves. But that makes sense, too. Because if you're writing a story, why would you write your name into the story? You know, in The Great Gatsby, Fitzgerald does not write himself into the story whatsoever. His name does not appear within the text of The Great Gatsby. How do you know it's written by F. Scott Fitzgerald? Because you read the cover, right? But it's not in the book. It's on the cover. And so when we think about these Gospels, one way that we might think about them is that they were originally written not in book format. Books didn't exist 2,000 years ago. They were written on scrolls. And what was the cover to a scroll? Well, if you had a collection of scrolls, you would keep it in some sort of box, and they would all be sticking in the box. And you might put a tag on the end of it, and that tag would tell you the author and the, the name of the book or the scroll. And so maybe this had a tag in the early church, but... It was very clearly from the very early church days recognized as being written by a man named John. The author asserts himself over and over again in John that he was present firsthand and that he was a disciple of Jesus. And not just any disciple, but he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. You might even think that he was Jesus' best friend writing a letter and writing a story about who Jesus was. While I guess there's no way to be 100% sure, uh, but traditionally this has been understood to be referring to John the son of Zebedee, whose brother is James, who's in the inner circle of Jesus. He's known as a fisherman. At one point, John and his brother James asked to be seated at the right and left of Jesus in his kingdom to come. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. 
because Jesus knew he was on the way to the cross, and they didn't understand that completely. And so it's been traditionally understood to be, under, to be identified as John, the son of Zebedee. He's in Jesus' inner circle with James, John, and Peter. And he writes this gospel with a very specific goal in mind. He wants us to know who Jesus is. That's the whole point of John. He just wants you to know who Jesus is. In John chapter 20, he tells us that. John chapter 20, verse 30, he says this. Now, Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things that I have written to you, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John, this disciple who was intimately close, was a firsthand um, eyewitness of many of the events and things that happened in Jesus' life. He wants you to know who Jesus is. He wants you to know that Jesus is the Christ, which is a Greek version of the word Messiah. He wants you to know that it's not his last name, okay? That Christ is not Jesus' last name, all right? Let's get that out of our mind. It's Jesus, the Messiah, or in Greek, Christ, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And John wants you to know who Jesus is so that by believing in him, you might receive life in his name. And so this is the question that is before us as we start an entire series on the book of John. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That feels like such an easy question to so many of us, doesn't it? Like we've been brought up and trained, catechized maybe, to know who Jesus is. We've been answering that question since we were children. But friends, let me tell you this, that small misperceptions about who Jesus is can have ripple effects in your spiritual life. I've been a Christian for about 25 years now. Not quite, but almost. I've been a professional Christian for almost 20 years now, meaning that I get paid to be, to be a Christian. I, I'm a leader in a church. I'm still learning who Jesus is. I'm still learning. We all still have ways that we can grow in understanding who this person is. There are new depths to explore. Even if you're not religious, this is a very important question for you to ask yourself. Who is Jesus? Uh, hopefully, it's a question that you have an answer to. Even if you didn't grow up in church or if you're not religious at all and a friend just pulled you here today, because Jesus is easily one of the most influential, if not the most influential person who's ever walked the earth. Most people, most religions even, would recognize him as a great moral teacher. But at the same time, when you read the Gospel of John, you see that Jesus he claimed to be God himself. And so what do you do with that? Who do you think Jesus is? Now, C.S. Lewis popularized an argument about this in Mere Christianity. He said that you have three choices when it comes to Jesus. Jesus is either a lunatic, or he's a liar, or he's Lord. But the one thing that he cannot be is simply a good teacher. Because how many good teachers do you see walking around claiming to be God? If somebody is walking around Davis Square claiming to be God, you're going to want to call the psych ward because someone got out, all right? That's probably a lunatic is what we think. Or 
is someone who's very deceitful. This is like a cult leader, someone who's a very good liar. And they're able to convince people that they are actually who they say they are, but they aren't really. Or, so Jesus is either a, a lunatic, or he was a very convincing liar, or he is Lord. And those are the three choices given to us by C.S. Lewis. And I think that that is compelling. But when I talk to my neighbors about who Jesus is, they usually choose none of those three. My neighbors say, Jesus is no one. Jesus never existed. He's a legend, a myth. And that is the most ignorant of the, all of them, in my opinion. Because when you look at the history and the reasons to believe that Jesus was a real historical person, you have great reason to believe that he was a real historical person. And for a variety of reasons, we have reason to think that Jesus actually did walk the face of the earth. That is an opinion that's birthed out of someone that did not do the research on this. Almost all uh, historians would agree on this one, that there was a man who walked the earth whose name was Jesus. One of the reasons why they would do that is because look at who his, official, his first followers were. Jesus' first followers, they were Jewish people. Now, what's, what are Jewish people famous for? They're monotheists. They only believe in one God. So why would Jewish people suddenly start following a guy who claims to be that God? That doesn't make sense. Jewish people are famous for not making any idols to look like a god. But now, all of a sudden, there's this band of Jewish people who are articulating something called the Trinity, and they're believing in this guy who claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God. That's a bold claim. And so his first followers point us to think that this is a real person who walked the earth, who actually did these things. In addition to that, when you read the Gospels, the Gospels, they do not read like legends. You read this gospel, and Jesus does some miracles, but he's not like flying around like Superman, okay? He's walking around, and he's doing things that are believable because he's undoing the effects of the fall as he's working through his life and his ministry. And so we read these stories, and they have details that are not included in normal fictional accounts of the time. Now, when we read fiction, we expect there to be a lot of details in our fictional books. And that's because we're a child of the 21st or 20th centuries. But when you read any fictional work that's older than, say, 150 years old, they did not have the sorts of details that are included in the gospel accounts. The gospel accounts are not written as fictional accounts. They don't read like that. If you ask a classical historian or a literature expert what they read like, they read like a biography. They read as a non-fictional account. And so we know from the Gospels themselves that these were meant not to be fiction, but to be non-fiction. In addition to that, there's extra biblical sources. Lots of people in the first century writing about Jesus and his followers. We have so much reason to believe that Jesus was a historical person. And that was one of the main reasons why John wrote his account. And so that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. If you have more questions about that, I can send you a ton of resources. There's a lot out there. So here in John, we have an eyewitness account of the person of Jesus. This is a record of the real Jesus. If you want to know who Jesus really is, look no further. This is who he is. So for this week and next week, we're going to start the very beginning of the Gospel of John. And so the, the way that John is structured is that there's a prologue. 
like many of our books. There's a prologue, and then it goes into the biography right after that. So he has 18 verses of prologue. Uh, he gives us a preview of many of the themes that we'll later expand upon as we go through this book. There's themes of light, of witness, of glory, and of truth, and of the word. And today, we're only going to be looking at the first three verses of that, okay? And then next week, we'll look at the rest of the verses of the prologue. So today, John chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read it for us one more time. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, who is Jesus? This is the big question that we're going to be asking the entire time. Who is Jesus? Jesus is none other than the eternal second member of the Trinity. Jesus is no other than the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Holy Trinity. John starts with the words, in the beginning. Sound familiar to anyone? I think we've read that before, have we not? If you go back about a year ago from today, we were doing a sermon series that started with, in the beginning. But I think it's important that John starts not just with the birth of Jesus. He says, if you want to know who Jesus is, you can't just start at the birth of Jesus. You have to go back to the beginning, in the beginning. He's intentionally bringing us back to Genesis, and he's saying that you want to not just look at the birth of Jesus, but you want to look at the birth of creation if you want to understand who this man is. In the beginning was the Word. Now, that's a weird word. If you look at it in your Bible, it's capitalized. And if you are brand new to Christianity, you say, this is a little confusing. What does that mean, that in the beginning was the Word? And why is that word capitalized? Now, the Greek word that's used for word here is logos. And logos is an interesting Greek word. There were many different debates about logos at that time. Um, the, the Greek people would argue about logos all the time because logos has many different meanings, but one of the ways that the Greek people and Greek philosophers of this time would think about logos was this is your reason for life. Your logos, your reason for life. You could, you could uh, define logos or, or translate it in a variety of different ways. Some of the ways that you might be able to translate it might be inner thought, reason, or message. It's where we get our word logic from. And so we read this word, logos, in the beginning was the logos, to mean the word. But not in the sense that it just means like one particular word. We read the word here meaning the message. Okay, that's how you have to read this. You can't just say meaning the singular word. No, this is the message of God. In the beginning was the word. When I was a kid, there was nothing worse than when my mom and my teacher would see one another. And my teacher would say, can I have a word with you? That means that my teacher has a message and that is I'm in trouble. We understand this to be message when we look at it that way. When you think about a, a person's words, they embody who that person is, do they not? Every day, um, at least three or four days a week, I get on my bike at 7 a.m. and I ride one mile to the gym. And that's because my wife needs the car to drop off the kids if I'm doing that. 
Um, not because I'm just extra fit. It's just my only way to get to the gym. Um, so I ride my bike to the gym every, uh, most mornings at 7 a.m. I see the same people. I've come to realize I'm seeing the same people. They're waiting on their buses. They're dressed. I know this one person, they have Monday clothes, Wednesday clothes, and Friday clothes. I see them every week. I've never spoken to any of them. I know what they look like, but I would not say, I would not dare say that I know them. Because I've never exchanged words with them. If you want to know someone, you have to hear their words and you have to speak words back in one way or another. To know a person is to know who they are by how they communicate themselves. And so when we say that in the beginning was the word, and we think about Jesus being the word, the word, when you know someone's words, you know who they are, but in the same way, their words are distinct from who they are. And so when it says, and the word was with God, and the word was God, it makes sense. Because it is the words of God spoken to us that are distinct from who God is, but it's also the very embodiment of who he is. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And if you think about what John is trying to make us think about, which is Genesis chapter 1, what happens in Genesis chapter 1? When the Lord speaks, what happens? The world's created, right? He, he speaks and he creates with his words. And so if we want to think about it the way that John intends for us to think about it, the word of the Lord, which is the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ himself, is the creative agent of God. He speaks and things come into existence. That's why he says in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the creative agent of the eternal triune God. He's active in the creation of the world. And so John is intentionally choosing this word logos, to help us to think through all of these things. Like I said, this is a, this is a ocean that you can play on the, uh, on the shore and enjoy, or you can go very deep into who God is just in these first few verses. And so he's also using this double meaning that he has from the Greek people where they would argue over the logos of life, the, the reason for life. And so when John is writing this, he's intentionally saying, hey, I'm writing in Greek. Check this out. There is a reason to life. But that reason is a person. God has revealed himself and revealed the reason of life through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the word of God, the reason for life. He was there at the beginning. Jesus says, this is something that's going to be extremely hard to wrap your mind around. Because we're going into some mysterious categories, some mysterious territory here. But Jesus is the eternal son of God. And that means that Jesus has existed from eternity past. That when he came into the world, that was not the first time that Jesus ever existed, but he existed as the Son of God throughout eternity past. Let's not make the same mistake as Arius, who was a third century theologian, who was condemned as a heretic for demanding that there was a time when Jesus was not. Many religious groups, they claim this. 
Same mistake that's been made. There's no new heresies, okay? We just have the same heresies that pop up over and over again. And the Jehovah's Witnesses would proclaim this, that there was a time when Jesus was not. But we believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus is the second member of of the Trinity, before God created anything, before he ruled the world, before everything, in the beginning and throughout eternity past, God was triune. Friends, we oftentimes think about the Trinity in our Christian life as uh, kind of like a decorative pillow. Like, it's there, but it really doesn't have any use for us. Uh, we just know it exists. Uh, it's kind of a peripheral part of our of our living room here, but friends, the, the Trinity is at the heart of Christianity. If you miss the Trinity, you're missing the Christian message. Michael Reeves puts it like this. He says, who wrote a phenomenal book on the Trinity, it is only when you grasp what it means for God to be a Trinity that you really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. If you want to know who Jesus is, John's starting very deeply here. If you want to know who the Son of God is, this man who claimed to be the Son of God, you have to understand the Trinity. But here's the thing about the Trinity, is it's really hard to understand. We, may, we mess it up all the time. Every illustration about the Trinity messes up. I've heard most of them. Maybe you'll have a new one. We can have just a, a Trinity illustration sharing time if you want afterwards, and I'll tell you why you're wrong with your illustration. Uh, I've heard the one that says that the Trinity is like an egg. You have the shell, and you have the whites, and you have the yolk, and that's like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all part of the same essence. They're all egg, but yet they're distinct from one another. Wrong. That's partialism. They all are separate from one another. No, the Trinity, they're all fully God. You wouldn't take an eggshell and say, that's an egg. You would say, no, that's an eggshell, and so you have partialism. You, I've heard the one that says that uh, the Trinity is like a shamrock. You, you have three leaves on a clover. And no, that's not right either. Partialism also, okay, you can't just have one, a one-leaf clover. Um, I've heard the one that says the Trinity is like water. And this one gets a little, a little better, I guess, uh, where water can be uh, both liquid or it can be uh, ice, or it can be vapor, right? No, that's modalism. It's saying that God is only one at one time, all right? So you, you have to have all three fully God all the time. Now, I heard many years ago from one of the scientists people at our church that there's a triple point of water. Um, I'm not good enough at science to know. Maybe, maybe that's a good illustration. I'm not sure. Maybe someone can convince me later. God is Trinity, Three distinct persons with one true essence. It's, it's a bit hard to describe, isn't it? But, I mean, if we believe in an eternal God who is more powerful than everything and created the world, uh, did you expect him to be easy to understand? <laughs> it, it is complicated, but he is beyond us. We are his creatures. If God the Son, along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, existed throughout eternity past, then that means that before God was creator, before God was ruler, God was father. That actually, this characteristic of God being father 
is more essential to who he is than God being creator. We don't often relate to him like that. We often think about the father being kind of like a cherry on top of his character, being like, yeah, he created everything. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing, and he's kind and father. But no, this is the very essence of who he is. Before he ever created anything, he existed throughout eternity past, relating with God the Son as God the Father. Have you ever thought about what God was doing before he created the world? Like, what was he doing? Why did he create the world? Was he lonely? Was he bored? I don't know. What was he doing during that time? We oftentimes think about God creating the world with the same motivations that we might adopt a pet. You know, I was a little lonely. I was a little bored. I decided to adopt a pet so I have someone to play with, something to watch, laugh at, some company from time to time. My family, we have a pet. Uh, Her name is Maggie. She is a 13-year-old Westie. She will bite your face off. Um, She is a cute little fluffy thing, but she will attack. You just have to watch out. When uh, Megan and I first got married, meaning she's older than all of my children, Um, when Megan and I first got married, uh, the year was 2010, and uh, we had been married for approximately 14 minutes before Megan started asking me if we could get a dog. Um, And then, you know, a couple months went by, and she was like, I'm going to start asking for a baby if you don't get a dog. And I said, that's fine, we can get a dog. Uh, One morning, I I prayed about it, and heard divine revelation, dog time. Um, So I uh, went to her one morning, and I said, hey, I think we can get a dog, okay? Let's, let's Let's find a good one. Let's think about it. I came home that evening from work. She said, I found a dog. It's time to go get it. And so we went and got in the car that evening, I do believe, and we drove about an hour and a half to this place's, this person's house who had West Highland White Terriers. They're really cute little dogs. The, the Caesar dog food dog, that's like what my dog looks like, okay? Um, and we bought her, and we brought her home as a puppy. And uh, this is back when I was in seminary. We were living in Kentucky at the time. And I just remember contemplating at that moment, and really for the next several months, this dog's going to live a long time. Like, I just made a commitment as a 24-year-old man that I'm going to be taking care of this creature until I'm in my 40s, which was just unfathomable at the time. And here I am, 37, and the dog's still kicking, and still walking around, still trying to bite people's faces off. And at this point, you know, we really love the dog. We do love her. Um, Yeah, we do love her. Yeah, but mainly we just can't bear the thought of parting with her. You know, she's part of our family. She is. She's kind of annoying, but she's part of our family. She's grumpy. She bites. We can't conceive of leaving her. And this is how we usually think about God creating the universe. Is that he made this commitment. He did it. Now... He doesn't really like us that much anymore. <laughs> um, you know, we, we, we bite back. We, we go our own way. We're rebellious. But he's kind of stuck with us. And that's the way we think about it. But friends, that is not his motivation. And that is not why he created the world. God did not create us on a whim, out of loneliness. But 
it was out of an overflow of the love that he shared within the members of the Trinity that he wanted to share with more. He wanted to share with all creation. We can only say that God is love because he exists as Trinity. If you think about it, if God did not exist throughout eternity past as Trinity, he would have no one to love before the creation of the world. And so we would be required to be created in order for God to be loved. But no, because he's always existed in three persons, we get to call him the God of love. He's always been loving. And it's out of an overflow of that eternal love that they've had for one another that he created the world. Michael Reeves, again, he says, all of creation is about the outward extension of the eternal love of the Father for the Son so that it might be enjoyed by others. The fountain of love brimmed over. The Father so delighted in his Son that his love for him overflowed so that the Son might be the firstborn of many. So who is Jesus? The beloved Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, eternally loved by the Father, and this is why Jesus was sent into the world, that the eternal love of God might be found by us. That we might also enjoy the eternal love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. This is the message of the gospel that though Jesus has existed as the second member of the Trinity throughout eternity past, he came to earth so that he might experience the wrath of God on our behalf. So that as he's resurrected from the dead, we might be risen with him as we place our faith and hope in him, so that we might also, into eternity future, enjoy the privileges and rights that he's experienced through eternity past as a son of God. He welcomes us in to relationship in the Trinity. This is the heart of the gospel, that he paid our penalty, that in our belief in him we have life in his name. We're welcomed in to the delightful relationship that they've enjoyed forever. Jesus, John wants us to know who Jesus is, Jesus wants us to know who God the Father is. Listen to his high priestly, his, his very, um, his prayer just before he died. Uh, John chapter 17, he says this, Oh, righteous Father, he's praying to his Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and I know that, and, I, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love in which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus wants to share the love of the Father. So John wants you to know who Jesus is. These things are written so that you might believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let me end with this. Who is Jesus to you? You can have a very doctrinal, correct view of who God is, but yet have misconceptions in your heart. You may think of him as a tyrant or as an enemy or someone who wants the worst for you, but who is Jesus to you? Is he just a good teacher? Is he someone you're not sure you can depend upon? Is he a prophet? Is he just your friend? 
Jesus, my friends, is a real person, and he really is God. He surely is these things, but most importantly, he is Savior and Lord, worthy to worship and to follow. And many of us today, we're just taking those first steps of getting to know him better, and I pray that as we dive through this series, that we might know that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that we might understand what that means for us. And some of us here today, as we're hearing this message, we need to repent of our faulty views of who God is. We need to just say, God, I've thought of you wrongly. Would you forgive me and help me to delight in the love that you've experienced throughout eternity past, that we might enjoy God the Father as we are united with God the Son through our belief and our love for him. And so one way that we commune with God, that we're reminded of what God has done for us by sending his son to die on our behalf as we practice the sacred meal called communion. And each week this is an invitation to evaluate your life. Are you living as if Jesus is Lord? That is the question for us. And if you are not living as if Jesus is Lord, master of your life, then we encourage you to repent and to come back to Christ and to enjoy this meal to be reminded that he died on your behalf to pay for your sins. So as we prepare our hearts to do that, would we stand and prepare to, to sing and to respond to who God is, to give him our worship? Father, we pray that you would make yourself known, that the person of Jesus would be moving in our hearts, that the Holy Spirit would fall upon us, that we might get to participate in the loving overflow that you've enjoyed throughout eternity past, and that we might know who Jesus is, that we might commune with him, and we might see that his heart is for us, that he desires to be near to us, that we can trust in him, that he's already paid the penalty, that we need not worry about burdening him with our sin, but that he's already paid the penalty, and all that you require is that we go to you humbly. And so, Father, we pray for anyone who's contemplating trusting in you, who's really considering Jesus for the first time, as a real person who walked the earth, who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died, God, we pray that you would save us and that you would correct our misperceptions and misconceptions of who you are. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth. And God, thank you for this great book as we dive into it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.